0: Might not be familiar with the Butler Act, but many will be aware of its main legacy, which was the creation of a tripartite system of grammars, technical schools, and secondary moderns. Where does this idea come from, Michael? The,
1: the, the idea of, of having a, 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 that what became called the tripartite system with that division of the academic higher achievers in the grammar schools, the technical in the people with a technical aptitude, and then the rest in what became secondary modern schools originates actually in the in the 1930s, um, and uh, was set out in uh, a, a variety of reports. And the important thing about the historically, anyway, is is to note that it isn't legislated for. It's, it doesn't. The, the act doesn't require uh, the, this division into these three chunks. It assumes it, um, and it is what people thought was going to happen. Uh, and of course, it never really became tripartite because there were hardly any technical schools created after which uh, reinforces the discussion we were having uh, previously about, about Corelli Barnett. Um, so it became a division um, at the age of 11 into the academic and the rest. So the academic went to the grammar schools and the, the rest went to the secondary modern schools. And roughly speaking, it's somewhere around 20% are going to go the grammar schools. It's a bit higher in Wales, it's a bit lower in some other places. Uh, and the rest, uh, go off to the, the the secondary modern schools, and that was still strongly in operation. When I you know, we you talked earlier on about my schooling, the reason we were all graded like that is we were going to do the eleven plus. I actually I, I went to a Quaker secondary school, so it never it never applied to me. But but you that that that's what they were expecting, and the school was going to make sure as many of its kids as possible did well in the eleven plus and got into the local grammar school because that was a better education. So. Yeah, but the idea, which uh, I'm sure Daisy knows more about than I do, but, but the whole Cyril Burt thing and uh, intelligence being uh, fixed and inherited was fundamentally part of the zeitgeist. That's what most people believed, certainly in the elite. And so it seemed logical. But there's a lovely critique of it. I can't remember who I'm quoting in, in my book where he says, is, is it um, conceivable that God had created each generation to fit exactly into these three categories?
2: Well, you you mentioned, first of all, Cyril Burt, and I would love to actually do an episode on Cyril Burt because he's kind of almost completely forgotten now. But as you say, actually incredibly influential, probably psychometrician in terms of designing these tests that that are going to separate the the, the kids into the grammars and the the secondary moderns. You know, look, my day job's in assessment. But for, for me, the incredible thing about this tripartite system is... How little it is based, really, on, on any evidence.
1: And it's worth mentioning that Cyril Burt's research was in some degree fraudulent, wasn't it, based on falsified uh, identical twins who went different routes?
2: Yeah, well, this is why I would love to do an episode on it because it's incredibly controversial. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite a good story as well. As you say, there's, there's yeah, those there's rumours of, of, of fraud. But the, the, the three-part division, as I say, for, just from a purely purely assessment perspective, One of the things, this is, I actually, this is the real bee in my bonnet. So again, Lizzie's probably going to cut all of this. But um, if you look on the No More Marking website on our blog, um, one of the themes we repeatedly come back to is that student student attainment is on a continuum. You know, kids don't come neatly prepackaged in three categories or two or four or nine. It's on a continuum. And of course, there are times in life where you have to draw a line on the continuum as as you would with with age we all know age is a continuous distribution and we all know that sometimes you have to let 17 year olds learn to drive and not 16 year olds but we understand that age is on a continuum and what i find so striking about educational attainment is now and in the past that just seems so much more of a difficult idea for people to understand and 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 the origins of it go back to as you said beyond beyond this this idea that yeah well we've we've just naturally these these children occur in these three
0: three categories and
1: uh, there's still quite a lot of thinking not exactly as um, crude as uh, uh, as what we're talking about but where where people talk about identifying the full potential of a child I I always say you anybody who thinks they know the full potential of a child is being extremely arrogant because who who knows what these people can achieve in different circumstances you can unlock potential but you can't full you can't be sure you have fulfilled somebody's potential and these the, the the self-fulfilling prophecies that emerge from that are a problem that that's what happened in the 40s and 50, late 40s and 50s you've got there people people i'm sure people in primary schools go around and say well he's a grammar school boy or she's a grammar school girl but others weren't you know and, and that is that is a it, it People's destinies were decided by an eleven plus in quite significant and uh, based on at least questionable data, and it did it, so. And Butler, if you if you if uh, I quote some of this, in, but Butler was quite suspicious of it. The, the administrators loved it in his department. Uh, some of them truly believed in elitism. They actually wanted a grammar school stream to run the country later on, but but they they were all um, lined up behind it. But Butler was asking him quite sceptical questions. C- could somebody, he was saying, between the age of 11 and 13, move from one school to another? And they were saying, yes, of course, but it didn't really happen hardly at all. And the technical schools barely got off the ground at all. So it, it's it's a big flaw in the implementation of the act. And and in the it's a good example of how it's not the words on the page of the act that matter. It's the zeitgeist and the context and the cultural attitudes that surround a piece of legislation, they're as important as the actual content of the legislation.
0: Can we talk a little bit more about why technical schools just don't happen or barely happen?
1: It's a longer conversation, but I think there are two things. One is, it was harder to identify who the kids were for the technical schools, but that's a minor thing. They were more expensive to set up and money was under pressure in the immediate post-war era so, so they just never quite got going there were there were a handful but they were really very very few and far between and by the way later on i i did some research when i was at the institute of education for the ctc the the, the city technology colleges trust on whether you could identify aptitude in certain technical subjects at that age and you and the conclusion was you can't. You can't say this person's got a big technological future because it's part of general intelligence and it's not fixed and all of that. So we, we talked about what you could do, but I think the technical schools never got through. It. But it would also, Lizzie, relate to the cultural point, which is people didn't see them as a really important or not enough politicians or people around the system saw them as important enough. That is really
0: interesting. I mean, especially in the light of, of the technology that enabled us to win the war.
1: Yeah, it's true. This is where Corelli Barnett is right. You could have had a different approach after war. If you you could have had different ministers, different prime ministers who would have... And we've only in the whole of history had one prime minister with a science degree, and that was Margaret Thatcher. You no, know, it's a it's a challenge we, we haven't valued. So we've had not many secretaries of state for education have had science degrees. Uh, either there are there are there are one or two
0: i will just say one thing in, in churchill's defense because i feel like we, we've slightly engaged in a bit of <laughs> churchill bashing this episode uh, you know he he does try actually and set up a technical uh, in the the higher education sphere he, you know, he founds churchill college and, and bases it on mit which he's really inspired by in america yeah and
1: no, I, I i i'm a complete i'm a total fan of churchill i'm not no not uncritical but his role in this is—I mean, we're going to tell that story in a minute of how, even in a war, he does let Butler have a 1943 white paper and a 1944 Education Act that wasn't inevitable at all. So I'm—I uh, I, don't—I certainly don't want to engage in Churchill bashing, and, and, and I, I think Daisy's point that he was—he knew one big thing that, that you know he was—he was the hedgehog. That's what we needed from our Prime Minister at that time, and that, uh, so I think Churchill in the war is arguably the the best prime minister of the 20th century, maybe the best prime minister ever. It was a remarkable achievement. So I'm not, I'm not a Churchill basher, but, but if you come at him from the point of view of wanting education reform in 1941, you're going to bash him. And if you want, he, he's, not, he's not giving it significance. It, it took a while for it to dawn on him that he could do this during the war quite understandably.
0: In other interesting comparisons between between Butler and Churchill is that, you know, Churchill's notoriously pretty pretty bad at school. He un- underperforms at, at Harrow, doesn't go on to y- the university. Butler's rather the opposite. It wasn't until researching this programme that I realised that, that Butler's part of this enormous educational dynasty, a number of his ancestors teach at Harrow School, uh, where, where Churchill went, um, and, and at Cambridge. Butler himself gets one of the highest firsts in his year at, at Cambridge. And so Butler clearly is really inspired by the power of education and sort of believes in, in education's value as, as sort of a civilizing mission. But then when you look at the the act itself, it doesn't really spend much time concerned at all with the, the substance of education, with kind of curriculum, pedagogy, what's actually going to be taught, what subjects would be mandatory, and that's that's sort of fascinating in a way.
1: Yes, it is.
0: Butler basically ends up getting sort of having to spend all of his time on these structural issues, and in some ways, that's kind of a perennial complaint of education secretaries. Um, so Thatcher reflected that too much of my time at education has been spent arguing about structures and resources too little in addressing the crucial issue of the contents of education yeah um but does Butler really get caught in that same trap do you think
1: Uh, by the way just before I come to that the white paper I wrote at the beginning of the new Labour government in 1997 published in July 97 um, David Blunkett's white paper we had a phrase that standards matter more than structures so it's exactly the same thing in uh, 1998 as as you're just quoting so we, we we were we were part of that. Look, the, the when Butler was taking this through, the first thing is there was a widely held view, certainly promoted by teachers, but widely shared, that actually it was teachers' job to design the curriculum, to to, to that they should they should control it, and that lasted certainly until I was a teacher in the early eight, late seventies, early eighties. So so it was teachers' job to do that, and it looked like a very strong argument when you're fighting a war against fascism, where they're telling everybody what to believe and think all the time. And Ronnie, uh, uh, Ronnie Gould, who I mentioned earlier, that the, in my view, the greatest of the General Secretaries the NUT ever had, he constantly set, argued that the best defence for democracy is teachers deciding what should be taught in their classrooms. And you can see how that argument would be compelling in the, in the forties. And Butler, that hence his reply to Churchill, I, you know, he couldn't instruct people to that in, in, uh, Wolf won Quebec because that wasn't what we did in this country. So you've got that whole. That's the that's the culture, the, the cultural hegemony of the time. And then the second the second thing is it do, the very opening section. Of the 1944 Act does talk about the spiritual, moral, social, and cultural uh, outcomes. Uh, so it does, and that, that clause it, it's it's very it's 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 a requirement on the local authorities to see that that uh, that that applies. So there is a an overarching statement of what education is for right at the beginning of the Act that was debated quite vigorously in 1988 with the Kenneth Baker Act when the national curriculum came in. They 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 slightly altered it, but they kept those four words: spiritual, moral, social, and cultural. So there there was an idea of what education was for, but they weren't going to prescribe it.
2: That's very interesting. I mean, part of me thinks I know what you're saying that they didn't want to specify what to teach, but it's a a bit like what you were saying before about um, you've also got to consider the zeitgeist and the cultural, you know, the the culture around schools at the time. That you know, up until the sort of early 20th century. You've got a form of payment by results in state schools Yeah. where there's actually quite a strict assessment being laid out. And, you, you, you know, even at this stage, you've got you've got you've got exams which do, as we always complain about now, determine the curriculum. So the idea that even in the 1940s, teachers had sole, complete freedom over what to teach, I find probably you know probably wasn't the case. <laughs>
1: you're absolutely right. And you're you're you're, you're a super, uh, super uh, expert on on on. Um, assessment and what in fact ha- that was the argument that teachers were making. But what in fact happened is the exam boards determined the curriculum of secondary schools, and the eleven plus determined the exact the, the curriculum of primary schools. So the the in terms of the context of the forties, the government didn't control those things. The universities controlled the exam boards. Uh, uh, experts had established the eleven plus and all that. So it, it's. And they, and they massive, if I, you know, I, I can remember the spelling tests and the mental arithmetic tests, and I was doing all that as a pupil age eight or nine, because one day I was going to, they, in, in my classmates were going to do the 11 plus and we had to be good at that stuff. So it, it's to, it is a total myth that teachers worked out. They, they they could, like my Mr. Crompton that I mentioned, he could decide how he told this story uh, and he had some say, but, but basically the, the assessment and testing Set the curriculum, and actually,
2: the Norwood Committee, which is where Butler sort of hives off discussions about the tripartite systems. This Norwood Committee, I, I think, Cyril Norwood says that in the in the paper, he says the you know the exams exert a lot of influence over the curriculum. Yes, so this idea that you know we've only teaching to the test was something that happened in the in the nineties or the early twenty first century. That's that's not the case. it's you know arguably been around a lot longer.
1: Uh, absolutely no that's absolutely right
0: it makes a lot of sense that the butler didn't want to complicate the political situation by uh, imbuing too much sort of rhetoric about the content of curriculum into the act in terms of the passage through you know managing to get this piece of legislation through parliament so it's probably quite a good time to to sort of segue into talking about that about the actual mechanics of it yeah,
2: let's let's do that in terms of how butler gets the act through Parliament we spoke in the previous episode about Churchill perhaps not being so keen on social reform and thinking it's a distraction and thinking it's not the kind of thing that you you should be involved in when there's a war on. Um, But actually he does start to change his tune a little bit and he starts to change his tune a little bit because he probably realises as sort of 1942, 43 goes on, that there is a public appetite for a lot of this social reform and that he's going to face an election (laughs) when the war is over. And perhaps if there's a public appetite for this, you know that's that's not great if um if he's if if all of the appetite for social reform is seen is coming from Labour and the Liberals, so he he kind of calls calls in Butler, doesn't he, for a meeting? And and there's a funny bit in the book where you say, uh, "This is a quote from Butler's diaries." Churchill began aggressively by claiming that his cat did more for the war effort than I did, since it provided him with a hot water bottle and saved fuel and power. And didn't I agree? I said not really, but that it was a very beautiful cat. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Again, Churchill not necessarily seeing eye to eye with Butler, but he does in that meeting. He does sort of soften a bit. It's
1: a classic. That it's a classic story. And well, the, the context had changed by 1943. First of all, after December 41, the US is part of the war effort, and that for Churchill that, that was a game changer. And secondly, um, by 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad is raging, and Hitler looks overstretched it's not all over but but so that the, the context of the war and and more and more people churchill had always believed britain was going to win but now he could see that so the context has moved on a little bit uh, it's important to bear that in mind yeah and butler gets invited to um to go and see churchill at checkers to have dinner and he thinks right well i'll, I'll get I'll, I'll persuade him to do the white paper but he doesn't get to see churchill before dinner and then he thinks well maybe i'll talk to him at dinner but the dinner churchill just holds forth as he um often did, uh, drinking champagne and, uh, and doing that. And then, so he thinks, well, maybe I'll talk to Churchill at the end of the dinner. And Churchill, as the dinner ends, says, right, we're all going to go and watch a film about Czarist Russia. And they all <laughs> go off and they watch a film. And then and then at the end of that, Churchill goes off, which he often did in the, in the night, he goes off and writes stuff, but just dictated to a secretary. Um, and everybody else goes to bed. And so in the morning... Butler comes down feeling pretty depressed and not expecting, not ho- or hoping to see the prime minister, but not expecting. And he's the, the officials are all. Oh, I don't know if he'll get. I don't know if he'll have time for you. And about eleven fifteen, so late morning, he gets invited into Churchill's bedroom. Churchill's in a four-poster bed. <laughs> he's got he's, he's banked up against some pillows. He's got cabinet papers on his uh, knees uh, in front of him, and the black cat is on his feet and that's when Butler comes in, and that's when that's when Churchill says that cat's done more for the war effort than you have. But, but when, you, when, we, when we think about the quality of Butler as a politician, that reply is absolutely – you think you could have been defensive, you could have uh, said that's nothing to do with what I've gone to see. He says that is a very beautiful cat. That is a p- completely perfect reply. And then he goes on to say uh, uh, I've, I'm going to publish a, a, a white paper um, uh, and so on and uh, um, and churchill talks about bringing it back and basically butler says but there will be legislation and churchill kind of nods and then goes off and talks about it's it brilliant but so butler's performance that, that 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 is a very beautiful cat is one of the greatest answers uh, that any secretary of state for education <laughs> has ever given uh, and because it, it could have gone horribly wrong because Ch- churchill loved the cat um, so anyway, they, so he's so he's off. So he's got his white paper. His white paper comes out in, in the summer of 1943. It's welcomed by Harold Dent, for example, the great editor of the Times Education Supplement of the day. Of the day. Uh, it gets a big welcome all round. The churches are, are broadly on board by now, and then he can move towards introducing the legislation, which he does in January 1944. And that's where the second reading speech occurs. It's a brilliant speech. And that's where he quotes that hymn, looking at the Catholic uh, uh, in in the gallery. Um, And the the debate is generally extremely positive. Uh, My favorite quote is from a a Tory MP called Jeffrey Shakespeare, who says, uh, I haven't got the exact quote, it's right at the beginning of the book, but but basically you've gathered up the dreams of all the education reformists. uh, And it's widely welcomed uh, across parties there's, there's uh, hardly any support. And Butler has done a great job of not just getting Churchill on board, but through the Domestic Policy Committee. I forget exactly what it's called, the President's Council, I think, which was chaired by Attlee. So the Labour, Atley and Bevin are on board as well. So he's got the the vast majority of Parliament with him and he takes the act through. And if you read the debates, which are, are, are beautiful, um, it's, it's a great debate and it goes eventually uh, through uh, into the Lords. But there's one debate that goes from churchill's point of view horribly wrong it's the only defeat churchill suffered in parliament during the entire war i don't know if you want to tell that story
2: this is absolutely brilliant i didn't know any of this and read your book and just wow what what a story so part of what you're saying here is it it does go through very well and butler manages it perfectly and he's already laid the prep work so it goes very smoothly but there is an element isn't there you say in your book that um there is an element of there's so little other parliamentary business but in some ways, that's a double-edged sword because, on the one hand, it means people are very engaged, which is lovely. On the other hand, it means people are really getting into the detail uh, because there's very little else to do. Is, is is that fair? So you've got a lot of backbench interest in this act.
1: Yes, I think that's true, and and you know, it was it, it, it there, there was a lot of interest for that reason, and for the and for the fact that that you know, the, the whole New Jerusalem conversation was huge in the country, and the MPs all knew that. Uh, and uh, Butler, not everybody. Was a fan of Butler, but he was widely respected, and uh, so I, I do think there was there was a lot of interest. And but uh, just before we go into the the, the debate uh, uh, and the the vote that uh, the government lost, uh, I just want to say one thing, which is totally different from now. You you can get the 1944 Education Act and read it cover to cover in an evening, and know exactly what they wanted. It's all there. Uh, you and it's it's only it wouldn't take it wouldn't take a whole evening if i think of the laws that have been passed in my uh time in policy the 90, you cannot read the school standards and framework act that we put through in 1998 even i couldn't read it when it was going through um because it is drafted it's complicated so and I, I do think it's an issue i don't i don't know how we got here but you you knew what they meant in the 1944 Education Act and the current legislation. Unless you've got a lawyer uh, and a parliamentary draftsman, you don't even know what they're saying. Uh,
2: no, I, I totally agree.
1: And they're long, and they're we amended that we amended our own legislation a thousand times while it was going through.
2: This is extraordinary. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I, I, we weren't unusual, I, I don't think. That's just normal now. But it's just yeah, not... Yeah, and
2: I'm, like you say, I'm not sure what you can do about it. And obviously, there's an extent to which things are more complex. But you think is there a point at which the complexity gets so great that you do lose a bit of democratic accountability.
1: Yes. Like yeah.
2: the inability to just be able to read something and engage with it.
1: Yeah, because I no, I remember, a I won't, I won't uh, be, be very specific, but there was a piece of legislation, a piece of the 198 Act, which I knew the ministers wanted and I personally wanted because I thought I'd have to use it after the act and the the officials were very scathing about it but I said no we've got to do it because that's what the ministers want we've got a mandate for it and they eventually did it and then the draftsmen eventually drafted the clauses and then the act passed and after the act I said right we're going to use that that section of the act now they said you can't and I said but i got the minutes out of the filing cabinet and said, look, this is what we agreed. And they said, but it's not drafted in a way that you can use it. And I said, well, we're going to use it. And if it goes wrong, that's your problem, not mine. Uh, and and nobody did. unfortunately, nobody challenged it. But it, it just shows. So I was completely on top of that white paper and that legislation. But I couldn't read. I couldn't understand the actual legislation. I think it is a problem. You're right for democratic accountability. And it's not just an education. It'd be, if you look at home office legislation or health, it's all incredibly complicated now.
2: Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, again, contrast with the Butler Act, there's enormous public interest in this. Yeah. As you said at the start, the massive public interest in the beverage report, which is coming out at the same time as, as the Butler Act's passed. But people are really interested in it. They can engage with it. It's not yeah. possible to do that in the same way today. No. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to then the only time that the uh, yeah the churchill government in the war was defeated, which is astonishing, and it is on the Butler Act. It's on a clause in the Butler Act. So if we got this right, essentially the the Act is going through, and it's generally accepted within this Act that men should be paid roughly twenty percent more than women for the same work. So this the, 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 this big debate is all about equal pay for teachers. And it's just assumed that that, that male teachers will get paid more. And a female Conservative MP, uh, Thelma Cazalet-Keir, she says, no, this is not on. And she wants to insert, yeah, an amendment, a clause, right, to say, look, we should have equal pay because male and female teachers, they're doing the same job. And she gives a speech and a number of young Conservative, male Conservative MPs, a few of whom are in the army, or been in the army and have, have come back, and a, a few of whom would go on to be um, very significant figures in the post-war Conservative Party. So Peter Forneycroft, uh, Quentin Hogg, who's later Lord Howsham, um, they all say, yeah, you know, she's right. We need equal pay. These teachers are doing equal work. Nan- Nancy Astor, Nancy Astor weighs in. First ever female, female, um, first ever female MP to take a seat, isn't she, uh, in in Parliament? Yeah, the the government lose. They lose on this. There's a vote on it, and the government lose by by one vote. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, so the, the whole story is amazing because and for our, for Aria, it's hard to imagine. But that that was and um so so the the the, the 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 those young Tory MPs get enough votes together to get it through by one vote. The the chance of the Exchequer. So you 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 know the layout of Parliament Square. The the the, the uh, Treasury is on the other side of the road from Parliament. It's not very far away. The Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time was a guy called John Anderson, who was very large, and he. But it was a wit, it was a whip vote. He was meant to get there. He didn't get there in time for the vote. <laughs> so had he got there, um, it, it would have been different. But anyway, the vote. So so they've lost it, and you'd think, well, Churchill's got a war on. What's he going to do? He calls a vote of confidence. <laughs> he he refuses. He refuses to accept that the government could be defeated. He didn't think, "Oh, well, let's just concede it because it's a good point." He thought, "We've been defeated. That is outrageous. Vote of confidence." So, can you imagine if the rebels had then continued to rebel and overthrown Churchill uh, um, <laughs> on the cause so, of
2: female pay? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, it's yeah, an extraordinary,
1: brilliant. it's an extraordinary story. But, um, but, but, and and so, and of course, Churchill wins the vote of confidence, and 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 uh, equal pay waits uh, quite a long time uh, after the war result and and those young conservative rebels
2: feel a bit feel a bit embarrassed i think don't they yeah they do <laughs> the churchill, yeah. churchill sort of it's you do feel like it's yes yeah, um yeah maybe he slightly over overdoes it but he absolutely sort of cracks down on them yeah yeah and lord
1: Helsham and peter thornicroft were both distinguished figures in the thatcher government later on so it was they, they were at the beginning of uh, long and uh, distinguished careers
2: and then just just one more point on the, the the sort of passage through Parliament and some of these things which take a long time to happen, because another thing that I think is a constant theme in educational, uh, so all this educational legislation history is the, the amount of time it can take for an idea to be proposed for everyone to say, you know what, it's probably quite a good idea. And it can still take literally decades for that idea to happen. So the one that is really so female equal pay actually is a good one, because that doesn't happen that quickly after the war. Um, but the one that is incredibly striking, which you write about, is Ernest Bevin. Bevin has proposed a school leaving age of sixteen in nineteen thirty-three. And Ernest Bevin is very supportive of the Butler Act, really likes it, but wants there to be some legislative guarantee about raising the school leaving age of sixteen. And Butler says, Oh, you know, it's again Butler being a compromise. If we force this through, that'll make it harder to get through, so let's not do it. But what you know, it can definitely we can definitely it'll definitely happen. And so Bevin doesn't get the legislation he wants. It's just more of a vague commitment. And then the, the punchline is when do we get the school leaving age raised to sixteen? Is it nineteen seventy-three? Yeah. So forty years from Bevin proposing it, it takes forty years for that actually to happen.
1: Yeah, and and go back to my point in the last episode about the Haddo report, nineteen twenty six, the last all age elementary school reorganized in nineteen seventy-one. And but the on on uh, on this school leaving age it's it's even worse than that because the, the act actually, but what Butler's compromise says, it will be raised to fifteen, and then uh, as soon as it's practicable—I can't remember the exact words—it will be raised to sixteen, which turns out to be nineteen seventy-two or three. But the but in in the immediate post-war, the Atlee government, there was some pressure from uh, the, the the Treasury not to implement even the raising of the schooling of age to fifteen, and um, the the immediate that um, the the, the uh, Woman, uh, Labour uh, Secretary of State for Education after the war, Ellen, um, Wilkinson. Ellen Wilkinson, Red Ellen, yeah, yeah, uh, who who was passionate about it. She she actually won that battle in the cabinet against Dalton, uh, who was extremely patronising, and she was very fiery and good. She did a brilliant job, and um, unfortunately, opening a building um, in London caught a really bad dose of flu and and died young. Uh, So she only did a couple of years, but she did win that battle. But so, so not only did the act not uh, enforce Bevin's vision of a 16 year uh, leaving age, it nearly, it nearly didn't require get the 15 uh, leaving age. That could have been delayed, but in, but Red Allen, Allen Wilkinson did see it through. So uh, yeah, it's, these timescales are extraordinary. Going back to Churchill, though, we should just say that once the bill went through the Lords and got, and then to the queen and got, uh, Uh, sorry the king and got royal assent. Churchill did write Butler a very very nice note saying pray accept my congratulations Uh, you've earned yourself a lasting place in the history of education in this country. So the great man respected the achievement of the of the young up-and-comer.
2: I think that is tremendous as well because you've said yourself about Churchill I'm you know Churchill is endlessly fascinating and I I can't get enough of, of reading about him but that's extraordinarily generous. I think when you consider that at the start of the war, there's a strong case for saying, you know, Butler's associated with all of his political enemies, and not just political enemies, but incredibly dubious dealings with this, you know, Swedish guy at the start of the war. That's and that's actually a characteristic of Churchill that he is capable of these moments of, of generosity. Yes, and it absolutely. does reflect well on him. It does to reflect to, well. Say that's that at absolute, that point. That's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. Oh, well, one other, one other little Churchill thing I will throw in at the end, um, which is to do with the money, the financing for this, is the other point you make is that one of the other perhaps more tactical, strategic reasons that Churchill comes around to this act, it, maybe it's a little bit more, you know, uh, it's politically sensible at this point to back it, but also you've got William Beveridge coming out with his Beveridge report at this moment in forty four, and the, the Conservatives don't really like Beveridge, <laughs> um, and so um, Kingsley Wood, I think. It's you know, uh, Chancellor at one point with this, he he backs the Butler Act, um, and and according to to Butler, um, Kingsley Wood in his informal remarks went so far as to say that he would rather give the money for education than throw it down the sink with Sir William Beveridge. <laughs> um, and Beveridge's system of social security, uh, Churchill does not like this idea. It's anathema to the Treasury. <laughs> um, so there's a point by which in 1944. Maybe some of Butler's ideas in 1940 were seen as being um, a, a bit too much out there. But actually, by 44, compared to beverage, they're a bit more mainstream uh, and, and the, the Conservatives are more willing to fund them. And is there something around perhaps Conservatives being more willing to fund, if they're going to have to fund anything with social reform, more willing to fund education than Social Security?
1: Yeah, it might be right. And, and, and certainly Butler himself had no doubt... Calculated that. And so he was using inside of government. I'm sure he was using those arguments. I'm surely, surely, Kingsley, you'd uh, rather fund the, the the raising of school the age to 17 and the expansion of primary education and all these things than than all that massive beverage stuff. I can imagine Butler behind the scenes making those cases rather well. Um yes, so so it's a good point. And obviously in the in the post-war Labour government, actually apart from when Ellen Wilkinson there, education wasn't quite the priority. Obviously it was the health service um, with Nye Bevan and then all the social security stuff did in fact uh, get probably more attention from Attlee and the Labour government than than, uh, but, than Butler's Act. And that might've been partly because it was Butler's Act, I don't know. But Ellen Wilkinson fought the good fight but then she sadly died young uh, and education never quite had the, the advocacy that it needed after that.
0: To finish off, I'd love to talk a little bit about accomplishment, delivery.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, so, so you worked in government under Tony Blair, delivering public service reform and including reforms of education. And you've worked with governments around the world on what you've called deliverology, so delivering policy aims. And in your recent book, accomplishment, and you you do your own um, excellent podcast, which we should definitely plug here, is about how to achieve ambitious goals, but to do it in a timely fashion. And I wonder, do you think Butler stacks up in terms of getting things done?
1: He he certainly stacks up in terms of getting legislation through. But of course, he wasn't really around to do the implementation because the 44 Act has gone through in August 44. The war ends in spring of 45. He's out uh, when uh, they lose the election. They've only just begun on implementation because there's still been a war on so, uh, and then he he becomes a the Tories are in opposition. He becomes a significant figure in redesigning Conservative Party policy, uh, and and then becomes a figure in the fifties. The governments in the fifties. So he didn't actually have to do the delivery. He was brilliant at at the triangulation and the the relationships and getting the churches on board, of the local authorities, and finding the compromise is Brilliant, uh, and um, huge credit for that. But implementation was left to the post-war governments and. Uh, there's a little bit about this in in, in my book that the local authorities were really important. They were inspired by this. they saw it. they worked day and night if you the, the chief education officer of the time saw they were building school buildings they were recruiting teachers. If you look at the in the last chapter of the book, the numbers of teachers recruited in the in the ten twenty years after the war, the number of buildings built this huge surge of building an education system. now, does it stack up under Del- deliverology invented later? Deliverology, by the way, was a term invented by the modern British Treasury. Treasury is a kind of gentle critique of me, uh, but I adopted their word. I had, I had a lovely relationship with the Treasury and, st- and still do. Um, uh, so and and uh, so I've had a, a great dialogue with them since, uh, since I was uh, working for Tony Blair. Uh, but the the problem with the whole of the post-war expansion is it was all about inputs. So it didn't it didn't say what should the outcomes be. And when I, I went into the Department of Education on the 2nd of May 1997 with David Blunkett after that uh, big election victory on the 1st of May, in 1996, so just a year before this, a report from the NFER, which you'll know well, said that literacy standards in primary school were the same in 1996 as they had been in 1948. So you've had this huge expansion of the school system, lots more teachers, but the results are the same. And that's why we had the literacy hour. That's why we put that big focus on it. And, and, and I think we began the turning of a corner, which which has been good for, 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 for England. But the so when I apply a deliverology template to the 1944 Act, I say Butler did a great job of the Act. Ellen uh, Wilkinson did a great job in the first tense years of the Labour government when there was no money and the Americans had called in all the loans. She did get the school leaving age raised up. That was a great piece of delivery. But over the generation that followed, we got all the inputs, but we didn't get the outcomes that we needed. And the tripartite system affected the secondary outcomes. We never got the technical schools. Uh, primary school performance could have been an awful lot better, as we now know, uh, but wasn't. So it's a mixed blessing. But the role of the local authorities was the key. And, and the, the 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 new Ministry of Education assumed that the local authorities would get on. They would fund it. But nobody at the centre was thinking, doing what I did for Tony Blair, of checking all oh, these targets being met, is the data showing what, pro intervening in bad local authorities as we did uh, when they weren't performing. Nobody in central government was thinking like that at all. They gave the money to local authorities, they saw what happened. Each of the local authorities had to put plans in to the to to the board, but, uh, sorry, the, the ministry, but they were just, it was all a, a kind of internal process. So I, it, it wouldn't stack up to modern deliverology, but there was a lot of passion for getting the job done out in the country.
2: I hadn't thought about that input-output thing, but it's it's so true. And, and obviously nowadays you get uh, education economists and it's their big critique of often developing world plans yeah. to improve education. Yes. So Eric, Eric Hanasek, famously, he writes a lot about this and says, we throw all this money uh, in education and it's seen as a good, but actually what's the output? And most economists would say, whatever you're doing, you can't just measure the input. Exactly, the output. Yeah.
1: and I know I know Eric Kaneshek as well, and I've, I'm not a fan of everything he says, but I'm a fan of him and the work he's done. And that's why in the Punjab education reforms that I led for with the, the, the chief Minister in Punjab between 2009 and 2018, we did have a focus on outputs. We did measure not just uh, were we building the schools, or we did do that. Uh, were we getting the teachers? Were the teachers not corrupt? Was the system functioning? But we also measured student outcomes in three different ways. So we were influenced by Hanasek and others because the, an awful lot of aid around the world is not delivering outcomes that we'd have hoped for. If you look at the US in the 1960s when they finally got separate but equal education gone from the Brown versus Board of Education, if you listen to Martin Luther King's wonderful speeches, he just assumes that once once you have an education system for everybody, it'll deliver the outcomes. It didn't do that. He'd be he'd be horrified by what happened in the you know later on, and it's and it's still a problem. So that that's the it, it's easy to use hindsight. So you've got to not judge these people with hindsight, but the outcomes were disappointing.
2: And that's that's a slight you know bittersweet tinge of the New Jerusalem, isn't it? It is because we're looking back at the New Jerusalem now. It's, you know, it's eighty eighty or more years ago people were talking about it. And obviously there were some things it did that were, were brilliant, but you always look back on it. And and obviously we'll all look back on it. All of us, you know, we'll all have relatives who we know who grew up with that. You know, for me, it's my my, my grandparents who, who grew up and sort of came of age as the war was ending. Um And you can't help but view it through the lens of, of people you know. You know, it, it is still sort of, you know, it's, it's not living history, but it's just, just, just outside that history. And I suppose it's like looking back on anything, isn't it? There's those successes, but there's that those those failures and those things where you think gosh did it did it really did it deliver the new jerusalem um or or or, you know yeah the the, the places where where it, it you know there was there was there was some failure
1: yeah there was i mean the 50s were a you know, you've never had it so good, and Harold Macmillan. Um, there, there was a sense that people did feel a sense of progress. They did see school buildings going up. They did see teachers being recruited. And you know, in in the middle of that, I started my primary school in 1960, and it all it all worked. And so there was an element of it. But the the kind of outcomes that we're driven by now, and it's very important not to use hindsight to judge people in previous generations. But the, the, those outcomes weren't delivered in the way that I think the people who put the legislation through would have expected, just as in, in the health service, they were, you know, if you look at the debates on the health service, they thought this would solve a lot of problems, or even people who thought that health service would get cheaper as they solve the, the, the chronic health problems of the population. That they'd inherited from the 30s and 20s
2: and and you're in a situation now where as you say education was probably a bit of a backwater then but it's now one of the big big spending departments yes right it's it takes up a huge huge amount of um public funding and there's that great stat of i think number of coal miners in the uk number of teachers yeah and they you know the lines sort of cross over in the 60s or 70s um you know lots of people working in education
1: Yes, and it, is, it has become, it doesn't get called a great office of state, but certainly in the Blair years, the Secretary of State for Education was a major figure. And actually, that uh, that I think Blair, in that case, you know, education, education was a turning point in the degree to which education was given a priority. If you go back through the previous prime ministers, Callaghan made his great speech in 1976, but he didn't have the time, as he himself said when I interviewed him, he he, he didn't have the time or focus to drive that through. So he never quite got it. He set an agenda. And Thatcher, um, who had been Education Secretary and not really enjoyed it, didn't really focus on education until her third term. But I think Baker is a decisive moment. So so the Baker Education Act, and that's when the 1944 consensus was finally unpicked. So I think that that's the big turning point in the post-44 era. And Baker did put standards, national curriculum, national assessment, all in his legislation, Because he was focused on the outcomes. Because by then, people had seen that the outcomes weren't being delivered in the way they'd hoped.
2: And so, I guess to bring it right up to date, then I suppose the thing I would say is, is you're right. You know, Butler is in a sense not doing all the complexity of the job that's being done now. You know, he's not looking at the outputs, and there's various things he can he can hive off. Um, But he does manage to get things done at speed at a time of national crisis. Yes. At the moment. I think we're living for a time where almost people feel there's like a, a, almost a lack of state capacity to get stuff done. At least in that sense, you know, he got the act through, he got the people on board and, you know, he, he moved the pieces around the chessboard and, and he, he got stuff to happen.
1: Yes, and, and, and I mean, obviously we've, we've, we've been through, certainly in uh, 2022, a period of, of great instability in the leadership of the department. If you have that kind of turnover of ministers, even, even before that, it's very difficult to get things done. So Butler had over three years in the job Baker had over three years in the job. David Blunkett had four years in the job. Ed Balls had three years in the job. Michael Gove had four years in the job. They're the people who made significant differences. Other Gillian Shepard, I should have mentioned. She she kind of cleaned up and tidied up the mess <laughs> that because <laughs> after Baker there were there was then a succession of Secretaries of State who didn't really Clark and those people uh, and then John Patton was a bit of a disaster. So so there was a, a and then Gillian Shepard came in and. And made sure, secured Baker's legacy is the way I'd put it. So there there are some, but the the ones who come and go in a year, there's nothing much you can do. Damien Hines, you probably met him. He's a very decent guy. Uh, he had a year. What's he going to do in a year?
2: Absolutely. No, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and the same at junior minister level.
1: Uh, some stability. Obviously you need to make sure you want stability around competent people but but stability really helps.
2: Well look we started off in the first episode we started off talking about was it you know enormously inspiring this generation to focus on education or was it just incredibly self-indulgent And and I think you said, you know, when you read some of these things, it can move you to tears. And, you know, I don't want to fall into that trap of hero worshipping previous generations. And you read enough about Churchill and you don't want to hero worship him. I've actually just finished a book on Churchill and his son. And you read something about Randolph Churchill and it leaves you, you're not going to hero worship Churchill anymore. Um, (laughs) But um, I still think, you know, there's a a sort of a happy medium, isn't there? And there is so much to inspire in the story.
1: Yes, Uh, I agree. there, Uh, There
2: really is. And I think that's a nice place to sort of to leave it on. Of getting so much incredible stuff done and having that belief and vision in something beyond the, the kind of immediate pressing urgencies of the, of the current day that's something we can, we, can all, we can all learn something from.
1: I completely agree and, the, and the, I, I quoted earlier that Geoffrey Shakespeare saying he was gathering up the dreams of all the education reformers You've had tw- two decades of frustration and suddenly somebody's put it all together. So it was very inspiring. <laughs>